0: Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. Okay, so we are on Sea of Galilee week 12. This is 12 weeks in a row of looking at all of these events surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And... As I say each week, I don't know how long we can go because there's so many events happening around the sea and there's things in my mind. There's things that I know that we have to cover yet, so we'll just keep going because every time it just keeps us in the New Testament looking at Jesus and trying to see some of the details that can emerge out of the, the text when we look at it closely. Now, for those watching online, we have an entire series, Sea of Galilee series, that you can find on our YouTube channel or figtreeteaching.com. And along with that, at figtreeteaching.com is the weekly handout. So, you can download the weekly handout to
1: follow along with each lesson. That may be helpful. Last week, we started an introduction.
0: And the introduction was to these feeding miracles. So, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. So we did an introduction. We'll do a little bit of a review, and then we'll look very closely at these two miracles and the details that are provided in our New Testament and how
1: those details tell us something. Not explicitly, but implicitly that's what we'll do today. So feeding of 5,000,
0: feeding of 4,000. Now on your screen, just to describe what's on the screen, is if we look at this photo, I'm zoomed in on a hillside right here. That hillside is where scholars believe that the feeding of the 5,000 happened, and you'll see why that's important today. But it's a large enough space Uh, The Bible describes it as a deserted place, a ramos tapos. And so where do you put 5,000 people that doesn't destroy a farmer's field? On a hilltop that you don't grow any food on. So that would be where we believe that would take place. Let me show you on a map real quick just to help orient your, your brains. So this is the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Here's the city of Capernaum where Jesus called his hometown. So, that's where he set up his ministry, called his disciples. We have over on the left side of your screen Magdala. That's where Mary is from, Mary the Magdalene, and God willing, we'll go take a look at Magdala in a few weeks. And then the hillside that I was taking the picture of is right here. It's a finger that runs out almost to to the water, and that picture was taken from a, a mountain called Mount Arbel. It's just behind the city of Magdala. So on top of that mountain, you can zoom in and you get a hillside that looks like this. So that's where we're, that's one of the feeding places. We don't know exactly where the other one took place other than it happened in the Decapolis. So we'll sh- we'll talk a little bit more about that today. Okay, here's our preview. Uh, just to give you an idea where we're headed this morning. We'll talk a little bit today about narrative. And we talked last week about how powerful narrative is. I'll do a quick review, because that's what we're going to see as Mark, we're going to be looking in Mark, as Mark is telling us the story. Very little dialogue from Jesus. It's all Mark narrating the, what happened. We'll look at some cultural details. Very important to understand the cultural nuances
1: of these stories and how they tell us something. Of course, location matters. That's a cultural detail,
0: and it matters who Jesus' audience is, and then the numbers involved. And this is what I, I think. This is one of those things where once you see the numbers, you can't unsee them. You once they're raised to the, your conscious awareness, you'll always see those numbers happening, and then. We're going to read through the two narratives and then say, okay, what's the, what's the overall message that we get from comparing these two narratives? So that's where we're going today. And let's start now by just a quick review of the idea of narrative. So much of our Bible is written in narrative. It's storytelling. There's a narrator. It's a voice of a narrator telling us the story that's explaining what's going on. Sometimes you just get a list of commandments. You shall do this, you shall not do that. Sometimes you get little pithy sayings like Proverbs. Sometimes you get dialogue. But a significant portion of the Bible is simply narrative. Somebody's narrating the story. And then you say, well, how do we, how do we pull meaning out of narrative? And God's message is being communicated through that narrative. and The narrative doesn't always explicitly lay out what's going on, but it's a very powerful way to communicate. I mean, we love movies, we love novels, we love good stories, and they communicate something big
1: to us. So that's the power of narrative. So if we look at, if we look at, uh, try to conceptualize this a little bit. You have the Bible, and so much of it is narrative. You have all the
0: stories, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and David and all the Gospels and the book of Acts is all narrative. And what you get are, when you read narrative, you really pay attention to the details. So you get detail and detail and detail and detail. And when you start paying attention, when you see a detail, always ask, why is that detail there? especially if it stands out as a little bit strange. Then as those details come together, they create a picture that emerges. And I use the word emerge because it literally does. It's a, it's a, it emerges out of us, either individually or collectively as a community, church community, and it provides a revealed truth. And the revealed truth is often lies above the narrative. It's a very powerful way of communicating. And some of that power comes from the fact that when we understand narrative, it's because we understand it as um, there's a saying uh, the rabbis say revelation from below, and I use a more modern term self discovery. When you're reading it, you begin to participate in a way in the narrative itself, in the revealing of truth. It's like you're part you're a participatory Part of the re- the revelation of God's truth God's truth is in the book, but it's sitting there as potential and then when we come along and we in interact with God's Word and the his reveal his revelation, that potential becomes reality in ourselves. we become part of the process and that's the power it's the power that we're it's participatory and so when you are reading, The narrative, and you see something truth that pops up inside of you, it's significantly more powerful than just someone telling you, right? You're in the self discovery process. You can't argue with yourself if you have self discovery. It's a very powerful transformational piece that comes out of narrative, which I think is exactly why God communicated that way to us. The hard part is we have to spend the time learning how to read narrative, and understanding something about the way, it, the way that it works. So, for instance, today, we have a narrative. There's two narratives we're going to look at. The feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And the details are going to be really important. It's the details they put in. It's the details they leave out. And I'll show you one of those, how important one detail that's left out. And there's repetition going on. There's a reinforcement. Repetition is a technique that the Bible writers use to focus your attention on something. So, for instance, location matters. Location of the feeding of the 4,000 matters. So that's going to be a detail that we have to pay attention to. Then we're going to see a series of numbers throughout this. And the numbers are going to tell us they're going to be part of the storytelling, part of the message. So, for
1: instance, at the feeding of the 5,000, we get the numbers 2, 5, 12, 50, and 100. You say, okay, well, so what? Well, the feeding of the 4,000, we get 4 and 7.
0: Now, there, right there, you could say, well, why the difference? That'd be a great question to ask, why the difference? And we'll talk about those today, what, what the differences are. and then. We noted last week something unique. When the story ends, the feeding of the 5,000, he says, how many baskets full? 12. Okay, that means something. Then on the feeding of the 4,000, we'll see today how many baskets left over? Seven. And those numbers are going to tell us something about the message that's being communicated. So we have to pay attention that when you start seeing these numbers, that there's something there and I'll
1: show you where Mark leaves out a number because it doesn't fit what he's trying to tell you. So this is where we're going to go today. One idea that you may keep in mind whenever reading the Bible is
0: if you see two stories that are similar, like the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000, then put them right next to each other and start mining out the differences or look at the comparisons. And it's within those comparisons that you'll often discover where the meaning is. Um, you know, if there's a New Testament story that reflects something from the Old Testament, put those two stories right next to each other and start looking at the similarities and the differences, and that's where often our meaning, God's meaning, emerges out of that. So we'll look at these two stories, the two feeding stories, and we'll put them right next to each other. So. If we look at a map of the Sea of Galilee, we notice something very distinct. First of all, the feeding of the 5,000 happens on this side of the lake. It happens right here on that mountainside that I showed you, that little finger that sticks out. And we've noted all throughout this series that that side of the lake is
1: populated by religious Jews. So the feeding of the 5,000 religious Jews. Then you say, well, where's the feeding of the 4,000? Well, it's on the other side of the lake. And what's on the
0: other side of the lake is a place called the Decapolis, and that's where the feeding of the 4,000 happens. And the Decapolis is populated by pagans. And so we have two different people groups, each receiving a feeding, and the numbers in each feeding are different. So, for instance... You have 12 tribes. The 12 tribes of Israel represent that the religious Jews on one side. So the number 12 would be significant if it showed up in the feeding of the 5,000. And it does. On that other side of the lake, the pagan side, there's the idea of the seven nations. And we'll talk about this in a second, but the seven nations that were driven out, where did they go live? They're the pagan nations that God
1: drove out or, or... moved out of the land. So you've got the 12 tribes, the seven nations. So these numbers
0: are going to help us understand the story. Now, I want to walk through the seven nations one more time. We did this last week, but just as a way of review. A few weeks ago, we talked about this city right here. So when Jesus and his disciples go across the sea to heal a crazy man, there's a word that's used that scholars struggle with. Is this a city? Is it a region? And so you can see right here that it says Gergeson. it has a question mark, which means we're not quite sure. Is there a city there, and that's what they're naming? Or is it a, is it a region? And what I, what we went over a few weeks ago was that many scholars believe it's region, not city. And there's a Hebrew word, just put it on your screen, called Gerushim. Gerushim, gerash, is to drive out. Gerushim would be the driven out ones. And Mark says they went over to the region of, and this is what we're not sure of, the Gerushim. Ah, they went to the other side of the lake where the pagan nations live, the driven out ones. And so this word ger, Gerushim, so just geographically, you could say on one side of the lake we have the twelve tribes. On the other side of the lake you have those seven nations that were driven out. And that becomes your symbolism for the entire world. Those seven nations represent, I'll show you in a minute, the, all the nations of the world. So where do we find those, that, the idea of the seven nations? Well, we went over this last week. Again, this is review. But I'm going to do this real quick. Uh, Deuteronomy 7. Now, oddly enough, Deuteronomy 7 is where we find a mention of 7. Those numbers came later. I don't think it has anything. Maybe God just coordinated it that way. God is coordinated. So, driving out the nations. Deuteronomy 7.1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you the many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. How many of those? Well, in case you can't count, the text tells you seven nations larger and stronger than you. So we have this idea. There were seven nations in the land. God drove them out. Where did they go? Well, if you're sitting in Magdala, in the synagogue in Magdala, teaching your disciples, and they ask you that question, you point over to the pagan area, the lake, and you say, "They went right over there. That's the area of the driven out ones, the Gerushim. So there's seven nations. Paul is going to pick up on this. So let me show you. um, in it's Acts 13. I'm just going to put it on the screen real quick. I put a little bit more uh, text here this week than I did last week. Last week, I just showed you verse 19. But Paul is... uh, The the setting is Paul's in Antioch of Pisidia. We were there, uh, I don't know, six or eight months ago. It's in Turkey. And he's giving a history lesson to a group of uh, his Jewish brothers and sisters in a synagogue. And the whole lesson is how all throughout Jewish history, they've resisted God. So he's walking through this, and I'll just start at verse 17. Paul, he says here, And the God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. That's the Exodus. And then this next verse, verse 18, just kind of cracks me up. Paul says, for about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. Now, just think about how Paul's, he's, you know, most people say God led them in the wilderness. That's not what Paul's doing. He's telling a story about how stiff-necked the Jews have been their entire time and how they never trust God. So, the way he tells the story is God had to endure their conduct in the wilderness. Anyway, Paul loves to weave in little insults here and there. Okay, verse 19, here's the key. He overthrew the seven nations in Canaan, and he gave their land to the people as their inheritance. So, right there, we get Scripture is interpreting Scripture meaning we find something later in the Scripture where Paul's going to use the same reference to seven nations that we find in Deuteronomy, and then we find the number seven showing up around the Sea of Galilee, and things start to maybe reveal itself to us. Something about the number seven and the nations of the world. So that was a review from last week. Let me go next I'm going to switch and just talk a little bit more about this number seven, and this is down at the bottom of page one of your handout.
1: The number seven is continually being associated with the nations of the world.
0: And not only those seven nations that were driven out, but for instance, in Genesis 10, we're not going to go there, but there's the table of nations. This is all the nations of the world. And how many nations are in Genesis 10? Seventy. So you have something akin to seven, 70 nations of the world. So as the, as the rabbis talk about all the nations of the world, that's the number they use. So seven is a little microcosm of the 70 nations of the world, those 70 pagan nations. So there's 70 nations. There's an expression that the rabbis use, it's the 70 faces of Torah. And the Torah being the first five books of the Bible, why
1: 70 faces? Well, because when God speaks, all mankind can hear him. He doesn't only speak
0: to one place and one particular time. You can read the Bible today 2021, and still find relevance in the Torah for all the situations in our lives. So there's so many different faces to the way you can read the text. It's very dynamic. So all of us can read Genesis or Deuteronomy, and it speaks to us for the for the relevance in our own lives. The whole concept is there's so many different ways to explore different views on how you look at the Bible, and that it can speak to all the nations of the world so that idea of 70 faces of torah is an expression that you may hear or may have heard and then there's a tradition within judaism that there were 70 languages heard at mount sinai when god spoke his words from mount sinai the words went out in all 70 languages of the world now that's tradition but you get the idea the fact that god can speak and when god speaks it doesn't matter where you are or what language you're hearing it in you can hear god communicate and that's beyond our individual ability to understand God through our own limitations but we can recognize that all cultures and all languages can hear the word of God so the number 7 and nations or 70 and nations has long been connected and that's a long standing tradition within Judaism let's go now and talk about these numbers that are going to show up when we read the text cuz i want to at least prime you that when we start seeing the numbers that they jump out at you. That's what I want to happen when we read the text, that you see them differently. So if we put these two feeding right next to each other, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. Feeding of the 5,000 happens in the Jewish area, the religious Jews. Feeding of the 4,000 happens in the pagan area, the seven nations. And then we say, okay, what numbers do we see here? Well, we have two And then a five, I'm doing the feeding of the 5,000, so five, 5,000 plus five loaves of bread, 12, 12 baskets left over, and then 50 and 100. Jesus has the people sit down in groups of 50 and 100. Why why are those numbers important? If we go to the other side of the lake, the feeding of the 4,000,
1: you only find two numbers show up. The number four, 4,000 people, And the number seven. And that's interesting. You only get two numbers that are repeated. But we've already talked about you have seven, the seven
0: nations live over there. Now, what's the four? We'll get to that in a minute. But so when we see these numbers, it's very important that we we want them to jump out as we go through reading this text, because those numbers are going to be part of the message that's being spoken.
1: Okay. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to turn in your
0: Bible, if you have it available, if you choose to do that. We're going to go to Mark 6. This is the feeding of the 5,000. And I'm going to start at verse 35. Now, it's a little bit into it, but I'm just minding the time. So let me, uh, we'll start at verse 35. Let me take a sip of
1: water here. So this is going to be Mark's narration of what happens at the feeding of the 5,000.
0: And what I want you to notice is repetition as we start going through the numbers. Because when, when it repeats, and you think, he didn't have to repeat that, he already gave us that detail. If
1: that's true, then he's repeating it for a reason. Okay, so starting at verse 35. By this
0: time it was late in the day, and the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus answered, but he answered, You give them something to eat. They said to him, That would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and... Spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Now, if you remember last week, that story from 2 uh, Kings, the Elisha story, there's a similar dialogue happening. Elisha says, give them the bread, and, the, and they respond. We can't give them that there's not enough bread here. Give it to them anyways. So there's something, the dialogue is at least going to point that first century audience back to the, that Elisha story. Okay. Here we go. Let's go now to verse 38. Now we start getting into the numbers. How many loaves do you have? He asks. Go and see. When they found out, they said,
1: Five and two fish. So we have our numbers. Five loaves, two fish. Then Jesus
0: directed them, or directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties.
1: So there we have our hundreds and fifties. All right, keep going. Verse 40, or I'm sorry, verse 41. Taking the five loaves. Now, why does he have to, why is
0: Mark giving us the number? Wouldn't it be sufficient, they just told us they had five loaves, wouldn't it be sufficient for Mark to say, taking the loaves of bread, but he doesn't. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, just in case you didn't pick up on how many fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to
1: the people. He also divided the two fish, so there's the two again, Among them all. So notice he doesn't have to keep repeating these numbers. Verse 42 they all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls. There we have our 12
0: of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Now we could debate is that men, women, I don't know. I mean, it says men, so you'd have to assume there's women and children. The point is, what's the number he's giving? Five thousand. So we've got
1: a number another number five. Okay, so there you see two fish, five loaves, sit down in, in
0: uh, or twelve baskets full, and then fifties and hundreds. So those are our numbers on that side of the lake. Now, what I want you to do is go to the feeding of the 4,000. It's just
1: two chapters over. Mark 8, and it's 1 through 10, right at the beginning of chapter 8 in Mark. Okay, so starting at verse 1, chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Now, just so you
0: know, in chapter 7, it it tells us that they went to the Decapolis, so we know they're in the Decapolis. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Now, we'll have to address this three days issue. Why is Mark telling us three days? And there's an idea, just so you know, there's an idea that within the Bible, three days is the length of a spiritual journey. So it's representative of a spiritual journey. First century uh, audience would read, they're on a spiritual journey with Jesus. Abraham walks three days to sacrifice Isaac. Moses, God says, go three days into the desert. And of course, Jesus, three days, three nights. Jonah, three days, three nights. So the three days becomes a representative, in a way, of a spiritual journey. But that's we don't have time to do that today. Okay, verse 3. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. Next verse, verse 4. His disciples answered, But we're in this remote place. Can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven. Now we get a different number. Seven. He told the crowd to sit down. Notice he doesn't divide them into particular numbers. When he had taken the seven loaves so each repeated and given thanks he broke them and gave them to the disciples
1: to distribute to the people as they did so and they did so next now look at verse 7 we get to the fish they had a few small fish now why suddenly become ambiguous about the number of fish What's a few? Like, a couple is two, a handful is
0: four or five, so a few is generally three. But why doesn't he use that? I love this. This was one of the things that when it jumped out at me, oh, when there's a detail that doesn't fit his narrative, he becomes ambiguous. And Luke does this, like in the book of Acts, Luke will do this. He'll give you a specific, specific, and suddenly there's an ambiguity. And you think, now why did he do that? He could have been specific. So they had a few small fish. He leaves that number out. He gave thanks for them and also the disciples to distribute to them. They ate and were satisfied. Same thing. They ate too. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven baskets full. Seven baskets, basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So there's our seven And then how many people? About 4,000 were present. So you can see how these numbers are being woven into the story and repeated. And that's the repetition causes us to stop and say, why are they repeating that? So if we go back to our little diagram here, you have two fish on this side, five loaves, 12 basketfuls left over, sit down in 50s and 100s. On the pagan side, you get 4,000 people.
1: And everything's in seven, seven loaves, seven basketfuls, and they leave out the number of fish. All right, what do we do with these? What do we do with these numbers then? What, what might they
0: represent? Because there is representation here. So if, I, what I want to do is go first to the feeding of the 5,000, then the 4,000, and say, what are the, what are the cultural representations of these numbers? So in the feeding of the 5,000,
1: you have two fish. Well, what from the Old Testament is a two? That's important. How many tablets in the Ark of the Covenant? Two tablets. And
0: on, that, on those two tablets are the Ten Commandments. Those are the two sacred tablets. So two, that's an important number. You have five. How, many, five. how many books of Moses? Five books of Moses. Notice we're on the Jewish side of the lake now. This is the feeding of the 5,000. 12, how many tribes of Israel? 12 tribes. And then you get this 50 and 100, and there's a point in Exodus. As Moses is leading the people out, he divides them up into 50s and 100s. So both 50 and 100 come from an Exodus story, something about Moses. So every number here can be related back in some way, to their culture, and their history, and their tradition, and the Old Testament itself. That's the Jew, That's the feeding in the 5,000.
1: But if we go to this side, the other one, the pagan side, you only have two numbers, four. And what would this be? Well, there's an expression the rabbis have. Four corners of the earth. What does the four
0: corners of the earth represent? The whole world, all the nations. It's another way of expressing all the nations. God covers the four corners of the earth. So this feeding miracle is telling us something bigger. Jesus isn't the bread of the world simply for the Jews. He's the bread of the world for the four corners of the earth. And then you get the number seven, and that's the seven nations that represent all the nations of the world. And you also get in the number seven the idea of completeness that there's, something com- there's a complete picture being shown here. Jesus is the bread of the world. He's the sustaining force for the Jews, yes. For the pagans, all the nations of the world, yes. He is the complete picture. He's the whole thing, and we get that through the numbers. Now, if you've never heard this before, it, to me, it, it, every time I see it, it blows my mind. If you've never heard it, you might be thinking, I don't know what to do with this. And the question we have to ask then is, do we have eyes to see? Can we see the details emerge? Can we see the picture that rises up that tells us something about the reality of who Jesus is? That he's for the entire world. And it's not always easy. You think, well, sometimes I don't have eyes to see. I'm not sure. And if you don't think that this is the the exact question that we need to be asking, Keep your Bible open to Mark 8 and look down at verse 17 because here's the question that Jesus is about to ask his disciples and I want you to notice the context he puts the question. They had, he had just fed 4,000 people and previous to that, he fed 5,000 people. Then they get in the boat. The disciples are bickering because they said we don't have any bread. Jesus turns around and says, what are you talking about? So verse 17, Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? So these are, these are spiritual eyes he's talking about. Do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? So he's giving them, he's going back on a little tutorial. How many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they said. So he's using this as his object lesson for, Don't you see the reality of who I am? When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000. Seven loaves, 4,000. Notice Mark is repeating all of this. How many baskets fulls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, Seven. And then his question is, Do you still not understand? And sometimes I think, I'm not sure I don't know if maybe I do or don't. so you know part of part of reading this in, in Mark shows me that, boy, you know sometimes I just don't think I have eyes to see all the time. sometimes I catch a glimpse, I kept, catch a little glimpse of who Jesus is, and then it's fleeting. you know, but it sustains me, it keeps me going for a long time, and then then I'll catch another glimpse of who Jesus is, and it sustains me, but my eyes aren't always fully awake. You know, I don't know that I always understand, but if the disciples didn't, well, then there's a lot of grace for us. So, but I just want you to notice the very next question that Jesus, he's using those two feeding miracles and the repetition to say, don't you understand who I am? Now it gets even better and we don't have time to do this today, but look at the very next miracle. He asks them, do you not have eyes to see? And the very next miracle, he heals a blind man, and he does it in two steps. He kind of gets his his eyes a little bit, and the guy says, well, I think I can start seeing something like trees, and then he goes, and he does it again, and then the guy can see. So it's like there's a process happening where our eyes are being opened. Our spiritual eyes begin to see the reality of who Jesus is. It doesn't happen fully and stay there. It's fleeting. You get it in glimpses. You hear it in a song. Something happens in life, and you say, Yes, God is active right now, and He's the sustaining force for my life. Do we have eyes to see that? So, here, so here's the question. This is what we're going to end with It's Jesus the Christ, the Christ, the Messiah. It's the Messiah that's the sustaining force for the world. That's what bread represents. The man does not live on bread alone. You have to be connected to the source of all the life force of the world for you to be alive spiritually. That's the abide in me. That's the, you know, everything Jesus is saying is I'm the sustaining force of the world. Connect to me or you die. And when you connect to them, you live. And then when we compare the two stories, you say, well, who's he, the sustaining life force? Is it only for the Jews? Well, of course it's for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. The bread of the world, just like the manna that God rained down from heaven, it's miraculous bread. It sustains you. It's that sustaining force. And that's what Jesus is. And he's telling us, through these two miracles, that he's the sustaining sustaining force for the entire world. And then the question for ourselves is simply, do we have eyes to see that that's the reality of who Jesus is? And, you know, I pray all the time that God would give me eyes to see the truth and the reality of what's happening in the world. That's what happens when we look in detail. We look at the numbers. We compare those two feedings. I pray that you are able to at least see something when we look closer, that the narrative speaks. The, the, something emerges out of the text that gives us a clearer picture of the power of this book that we have in front of us. and who Jesus is for the world. So that's feeding of 4,000, feeding of 5,000. And God willing, I was able to tie that together. All right, so let me me go ahead and stop the share here. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com
1: and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's Word.